Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to the Two Sisters podcast. My name is Janice Melillo, one of the co-hosts. And before we get started into today's podcast, I just, you know, <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of my family and friends have family and friends in the state of Florida. We are with you today. There are over, there are 67 counties um, in the state of Florida. And Ian, as we know, is such a voluminous hurricane. It doesn't matter where you are in the state of Florida. Our hearts, prayers are with you. Stay safe. I have relatives in Volusia, Indian River, and Brevard. So you know what? Underneath the live of this video, let us know what county your family member or friends are in. And let's get the prayer 67 chain going. So without further ado, today is Wealth Wellness Wednesday, actually one of Carol Sue's favorite days. She, I am not sure if she'll be on. I'm assuming <laughs> that she won't because she's in the state of Florida, of course. So we're going to get started today. And we are so excited to have on today's podcast, Esther Avant, who is the owner, CEO of EA Wellness. And I really love her background because her heart, her passion, her soul is into helping busy women reach their health and weight loss goals um, so that they can be their healthiest, their happiest. And when we are like that, we are our most confident. So welcome to the Two Sisters podcast, Esther. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. So you obviously have a very interesting background. And I want to start with that because I, I always love hearing how when, when we're interviewing, like how you gravitated toward wellness and what that meant to you and where you took it from there. That's a great question. I think it's so interesting too, because it's such an evolution for most people. And for me, it was getting interested in exercise, specifically strength training when I was in uh, my later years of high school. And that led to kind of a, a passion project for, for school about exercise. And it was at the time where I was needing to start to think about college majors and things like that. And in my mind, I was thinking, well, I like to work out. Is there a major where I can just get paid to work out all day? Mm -hmm. And ended up as an exercise science major, very quickly found out that I was not going to be the one exercising all day. In fact, in the beginning of my career as a personal trainer, I felt like I was spending all of my time at the gym and not actually doing any exercising myself. So that's kind of how it started. And then through the course of my early jobs, I started to see how the exercise piece was really just the tip of the iceberg. I was working with clients, mostly, you know, busy women at that time as well. And I would see them in the gym, you know, if we were lucky a couple hours a week. And I heard so many frustrations saying, you know, I'm working so hard in the gym. I know that these workouts are good, but I'm not losing any weight. I'm not really seeing any changes. And that's when it sort of clicked to me that it was important for me to develop skills outside of the exercise realm that led to internships and certifications in nutrition, which kind of similarly, I felt like I had all this knowledge, but was having a hard time actually helping people 
change their behaviors, which then led to all sorts of exploration of psychology, behavior change, and the actual kind of crux of how do we take the science and what we know to be true and actually help people apply it into their lives. So long story long, that's kind of how the business has evolved. And now what we do is very holistic, comprehensive health and wellness coaching, because there are so many different facets that are really equally important to our success, both short and long-term. And I think a lot of us kind of silo out. I'm just focusing on, you know, I'm working with a personal trainer, or I just have a dietitian or nutritionist, when in reality, you need to be able to look at all these different pillars of health and figure out how do I align them all? How do I level up all of them to support the goals that I want to reach? So that is kind of how I've ended up here. And I love that condensed version because you gave so much valuable information in really just a short period of time. And as I was quickly jotting some, some things down, whatever program or whatever we do when, especially for a woman, let's face it. And I've been there. So I'm talking from experience, talking about our wellness, our well-being, how we look, how we feel. I didn't have that. I didn't have that, that confidence to know that it really was, you know, this huge, well, there, there's this huge wellness umbrella, in my opinion. And underneath it, you have all of those pillars <laughs> that support your journey. And it, it's not so much what we do, but it's how we go about doing it. In other words, one thing that really stuck out for me, no matter whether you decide to go to a gym or work out at home, or if you decide to go on this diet or that diet, and Carol Sue and I do not like the word diet, but I'm just using that for reference. If we don't change our behavior behind that, that's, that support system, that foundation is going to crumble. I love that, that you use the word foundation. One of our programs is actually called Foundations because that's exactly it. We try to jump to kind of the advanced things. And I think a lot of times throughout our dieting attempts, we've come to believe that being successful requires misery and sacrifice. And it's almost like if it's not feeling really awful, we feel like we must be doing something wrong or we're waiting for the other shoe to drop of like, it can't possibly be that I can eat things that I like, that I don't need to run myself down in the gym and still be successful. So I think, yeah, exactly. Like you said, a lot of times we try to build, you know, we try to put the roof on this house of cards and then have the experience that most of us have had in the course of our um, adult lives, which is seeing success on the scale, but it being short-lived and just kind of that cyclical gaining and losing, gaining and losing and ending up incredibly frustrated and defeated and not really realizing that we're doing the same thing over and over again. And we need to take a different approach. We need to focus, like you said, on kind of the ground up. What are the basics? What do I really need to focus on doing consistently? And what are the the things that really kind of boil down to just noise and distractions that I've been focusing on and can just let go so that I have more bandwidth to focus on what matters. Ah, more bandwidth. I love that. And I want to chat for a moment about the gaining and the losing thing, because 
I think as women, <laughs> I know for some women, but pretty much for women, when we step on that scale, when we look at that number, now we either go, yes, or we go, what the flipping flippity flip. And I think we put too much pressure on ourselves when they see that number, like, oh, I'm uh, 278 pounds. And I was at one point. So I, I want to use that for reference. I'm 278 pounds. Um, that's kind of a lot. Not feeling good. So I really had to look at my journey in a different way. And I think when we start that journey of, you know, getting healthy, you know, working on our well wellness, working on changing our behaviors, which we all know is very hard to do. A lot of times when we do step on the scale, when we're doing all of those things, we're hydrating well, we're getting in some exercise or as I like to call it movement, you know, all those different components that come together we may not see a definition on the scale, but our bodies start to change. And I know for a lot of the clients that I've coached, they're like, oh, I haven't, I haven't seen anything in a month, but I gained two pounds. Well, here we go with the one pound of, of fat and one pound of muscle. Okay, you may not have lost. Okay, you gained two pounds, but you gained two pounds of muscle. And you're, you said that your, your clothes fit better. What is that telling you? Now, in my journey, long story short, there have only been five specific times where I've lost body fat and gained muscle at the same time. So I, I just want to leave that out there for women who are obsessing about that number on the scale. And I'm sure that, of course, that you've worked with a lot of women who like me, we're obsessing about that number on the scale. Absolutely. We have entire modules on understanding what the scale really tells us, bettering our relationship with the scale, determining whether it's even a metric that you want to continue using for the exact reasons that you mentioned. It's so easy to let your value and your self-worth and your success get caught up in that number and miss all of the overwhelming evidence that you are improving your health, your happiness, your confidence, all the things that really matter to you. It's really interesting. When I talk to women on consults, the majority will say, you know, it's not really about a number. I just want to feel better. I want to feel like myself again. I want to have more energy. And then we get into coaching and the scale just becomes front and center. Yes. I have all these other wins, all that stuff I said I wanted that's starting to happen, but the scale hasn't moved. And, you know, a lot of it is it just, it takes time and intentional effort to change how you think about the scale. For most of us, for decades, it's been kind of the primary means of determining, you know, how valuable we are and our, our success and things like that. So it's not something that changes overnight. It's something that requires consistent effort to remind yourself every time before you get on, this does not determine my worth. This tells me what, you know, my, my weight against gravity at this moment in time. And to remind yourself afterwards, what are all the other 
wins that I have. And I always encourage women to keep a non-scale victory list, whether in your phone or a notebook, just somewhere that you can jot down those, you know, quote unquote, small things that you notice in passing throughout the day. Oh, my boots zipped up better over my calves, or um, I was able to notice when I was mindlessly eating these cookies and stop sooner. All those things are incredible signs of progress and we overlook them. So I think documenting them can help you see this growing body of evidence that I am making positive changes. What I'm doing is working and to make a conscious effort to not let the scale overshadow those things. And then to recognize that the scale is optional. Like unless you're in some sort of, you know, maybe the military where you need to pass a, um, a physical test that, that includes your weight or if unlikely, but if you're a weight class athlete and you need to get into a certain range, for most of us, the scale, the number on the scale really doesn't matter. And for some people, it's incredibly freeing to just stop using it. I actually, when I was pregnant with my son who just turned four, I stopped using the scale. I asked the doctors not to tell me and I wasn't planning on it being, you know, like a, a long-term thing. But then afterwards I was like, you know what? It's been really nice to not, to just not have to deal with that variable. And mm -hmm. I haven't been on one since. I can tell based on how I look, how I feel, how my clothes fit, that, you know, I'm happy, I'm healthy. And for some women, that is the better solution. Rather than trying to change your relationship with it, you realize I actually don't need to have one <laughs> and just be done with it. I love that. And, you know, obviously we all have scales in our homes. And if I was to guess, I probably have three or four lying around the house that all give, you know, different information, body fat percentage, muscle, you know, all those bells and whistles. We really don't need that. What we really need to focus on <laughs> are the change in our behaviors. And the fact that maybe somebody has started today, that's a change, like right on your non-scale victory list. And I love that, by the way, started today have my first eight ounces of water. I'm going to keep going. Let's, you know, let's continue to build on that. When your clients are building their way to a healthier you. Now, one of the things that you said in your bio would, boom, stands out to me, of course, learn to trust yourself. That, that is so vitally important. It is. I think it's it's really one of the most important things because what a lot of us have experienced, not just in our health or weight loss journeys, but in some aspect of our lives, is we have found ourselves in a position where we keep saying we're going to do certain things and then we don't. And we have just trained ourselves that what we say we're going to do doesn't matter and that we're unreliable where I see it most often is in setting weekly health-related goals. I'm going to work out X number of times. I'm going to wake up and work out before work. I'm going to pack my lunch and meal prep. I'm, I'm not going to get, um, I'm not going to go out to eat this week, whatever it is. We tend to just kind of blindly set these goals, the same goals over and over and over again. And we really pay no attention to whether or not we're actually following through. And like I said, over time, we just train ourselves to A, think that like these goals are meaningless anyway, and B, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do the things. And if you think about it, if there were anyone else in your life who were, who was so unreliable, you would probably have a conversation with them about it, or you would distance yourself, or you would, you know, start to know 
this isn't the person I'm going to go to when I need something. This person is not reliable. This is not someone who I can count on um, in my life. And when you turn that inward and think like, do I want to be that person for myself? Do I want to be the person that I can't count on, that I can't trust to do what she says she's going to do? That's a really crappy feeling. And that's where a lot of us have kind of trained ourselves to be. So that's why I think it's so important to focus on our self-reputation and really to go about it the same way you would if you were repairing trust with another person. If you were in a relationship and you know that person lost your trust in some way and you decide, I want to continue to have you in my life, I want to work on this, the first thing you need to do is forgive and put the past in the past. You cannot move forward if you are still beating yourself or the other person up about the, the transgression, whatever has happened in the past. And then you need to put yourself in a position where you have the opportunity to rebuild the trust. So, you know, if you're in a relationship with someone who has cheated on you and you get back together, but you never let them leave your sight, you're not actually rebuilding trust. You have to wipe that slate clean and allow them to prove to you that they've changed, that this is going to be different. So you need to do the same thing with yourself. You need to continue setting goals. A lot of us get so tired of not following through on our goals that we stop setting them. And then we don't even try anymore. So you need to put yourself in a position where you try and you set really realistic goals and you remind yourself in the moment, why does this matter to me? Why am I committed to this? And sometimes it just boils down to this individual thing doesn't necessarily matter. It matters because I said I was going to do it. And I just want to be somebody who does what she says she's going to do. So if you set a step goal for yourself and you're, you know, say you want to walk 600, 6,000 steps today and you're at, you know, 5,500 and it's getting close to bed. Do those 500 steps really make a difference in the grand scheme of like your health and your life? Of course not. They matter because you said 6,000 and you want to be a reliable person who can trust yourself. Therefore, do what you need to do to check that box, to pat yourself on the back and say, okay. I'm trustworthy. And the more you build that reputation with yourself, the more you start to just really have that, that confidence to know when I say something, it's as good as done. Just like I don't bail on picking up my kids from school, just like I don't you know, decide not to go to this important work meeting. I don't not show up for anybody else in my life and I'm gonna stop treating myself like I don't matter. Mm. I, I love what you just said there because you're, you're focusing on, you're being gentle to, and kind to yourself in that process, which we know first and foremost, you need to be. But at the same time, it's like you're cutting through the, the bullshit. I'm just going to come out and say it. There's a term I started really liking that I've called compassionate ownership. And I think that's really a, a skill that a lot of us can work on building. You hear a lot about taking ownership. And I think sometimes it comes from like very like masculine place of, you know, everything is your responsibility, everything you do, don't do how you act. And it's almost like a little bit, a little bit harsh because a lot of women sort of internalize it and just like blame themselves that, oh, it's my fault this happened, it's my fault that happened. And that's not the same as taking ownership because it's not going to get you in a productive place. So I think the compassion piece is taking ownership from a place of, love and care of yourself. You want to be living your best life. You want to be the healthiest, happiest version of yourself. And that means not letting yourself off the hook, not 
allowing yourself to get away with excuses or justifications, but also not being so hard on yourself that you are like dead in the water. So it's reflecting from this compassionate place of, okay, you know, what happened? What could I have done differently? How do I feel about this? What do I want to learn from it? How do I want to do it differently in the future? Um, but I do think it makes a big difference to, you know, be, be gentle and kind to yourself because you really just can't hate yourself into meaningful change. That is so true. And I, I know that a lot of clients that I've coached and myself, I'm guilty of this. We use those excuses to justify our behavior. So it's almost as if we are letting ourselves off the hook, but without taking ownership of it. Yes. Sometimes I think it's that exact kind of double-edged sword where we let ourselves off the hook and then we beat ourselves up about it. So it's like, we've gotten the worst of both worlds and the best of neither. So it really is, you know, it's, there, there are subtle differences because you do want to be gentle with yourself. You do want to accept that you're an imperfect human and you always will be. And also you want to accept that if you're not giving your best effort, call yourself out on it because you are just like you would a kid. I was um, telling a client recently that, you know, if, if your kid brings home a mediocre uh, report card. They're not failing out, but that you know that they're not giving their best effort. You're going to sit them down and you're going to encourage them and you're going to ask how you can help support them. Do they need anything? You know, what is it that, that they feel is standing in their way of showing up to the best of their ability? And you're really going to encourage them to do that. So it's the same for you. Where are you just not showing up the best way that you can? And why is it important to you to start? What does that look like? What help do you need? And you know, give yourself an A report card because you're the one who determines, you know, those, those grades. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I want to go back for a moment as well, because it made me think of something you said earlier, I just have, and I know for a lot of people, they use a phrase similar to that, but also they might say, oh, when I get to this point, this is when I can focus on changing my habits and patterns that's such um how do i say in a gentle way because i i am guilty of this it's a false narrative to what we could be doing already but it's like okay we're going to kick our wellness to the curb when we really should be honing it in okay take responsibility um figure out you know, your day in a different pattern. Um, you know, I, I've often gone through the routine of having my clients journal out for a minimum of three days, like write exactly what you do when you wake up. So, and like, be honest with yourself. Oh, I see that you're scrolling. You do get up very early, but the first thing that you're doing is sitting down for 45 minutes, scrolling, guilty. I don't do that anymore. When you could be, okay, maybe put the timer on your phone for five minutes. If you, it's something that you just love, you can't give it up. So trim it down to five minutes. That's such good advice. And also hits close to home. Just a couple of weeks ago, I took social media, the shortcuts off my phone. Mm -hmm. And the time I have gotten back is mind blowing. I was actually just listening to a, uh, 
happiness, like positive psychology seminar before this um, podcast. And the woman used a term that I'd never heard before, but I love so much called time confetti. And basically how even though we feel like we are so busy and just like go, 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 go all the time, we actually do have more time on our hands than we have in the past. You know, we're not working out in a field from sunrise to, to sundown and then collapsing the exhaustion and doing it all over and over that we do have time. It's that, you know, we have small chunks of time and we squander them. So she was talking about making better use of those five, 10, 15 minutes between meetings or when you're about to go pick up a kid, but you'll be a little bit too early. So you're just kind of like mulling around the house, like those small windows of opportunity. If you added them up, they would be a significant amount of time. So unfortunately you can't condense them into one bigger chunk, but what you can do is stay more on top of when they're happening and what you want to use them for. So the, um, the speaker encouraged having a time confetti. Um, she didn't call it a to-do list, but like a, a list of things that if I have five minutes, this is something productive I could do. Maybe it's a meditation. Maybe it's a quick body weight circuit. Maybe it's calling a friend. Uh, maybe it's, you know, tidying up one small section of your house. And just that if we, if we took a better notice of those times and B took better advantage of them, we could get a lot more done. And then by nature of getting those things done in seemingly this time that didn't exist before, now we're feeling less frantic and flustered overall because now that stuff is getting done and it's not taking away from something else. You don't have the cleaning or the meditation or the phone call or the workout looming over your head for like sometime later. It's getting done little by little. And then the end of the day comes and you're like, huh, I have a lot less on my to-do list now. And you can actually then relax or do, you know, whatever else. Oh my gosh. I absolutely love that. And, you know, time, as we all know, is a precious commodity. And I'm going to have to ask you about that book once we sign off because I'm, or that, that, um, a program that you were listening to podcast, because that sounds very interesting. Now you have a special method that you use called the dial method. Can you explain to us what that's all about? Yes. I love the dial method. Thank you for asking. So a little bit of kind of context is that I think most of us tend to operate on more of a switch where it will probably resonate with a lot of listeners. You feel like you're all in or all out. You're good or bad. You're on, you're off, et cetera. You've got kind of that black and white mentality where if you can't commit to an hour long cardio session at 5 a.m. every day this week, might as well not bother doing anything. If you're not going to be eating meticulously measured and balanced and portioned meals all week, doesn't really matter what you do. And that's part of what leads to that cycle we were talking about earlier, where when you're all in, you're seeing this progress, you feel good. And it just takes like some small life occurrence to derail you completely. And next thing you know, you know, your kid getting sick for a couple of days has sent you into a tailspin and it's weeks before you get back into your routines. That's what most of us tend to do. What really helps us be more successful is instead of operating on that switch is to think about a dial, like a radio dial or a dimmer. 
where you've got, once you turn it on, you've got a whole bunch of different settings before you get to max. And you were, you were mentioning earlier about how easy it is to just kind of kick the can down the road and tell yourself, well, after whatever, next thing you know, it's been 15 years and you're like, oh shoot. Mm -hmm. So the key is really to learn how to live in those middle dial settings where you're not making zero effort. You're not reprioritizing your entire life to focus solely on your exercise and your nutrition. You're recognizing and accepting that you are a multifaceted human being with a lot of different interests, responsibilities, areas of your life, demands on your time. And this is one of the important ones of them, but it needs to go with everything else. You can't give 100% to everything all at once. So it's about figuring out based on the other demands in my life, what do I have to give to each of the, like kind of my core values or the main areas? So if you work in a job that has seasonal demands, maybe you're a, a tax professional and you know, all right, that you know first quarter of the year, I work like a mad woman and I have to turn my dials down, but I don't want to do what I did last year, which is just order fast food nonstop and like get a thousand steps a day. So what would it look like for you to continue to allow work to be your priority in that season, but not let your health go totally on the back burner? So maybe that means you invest in a meal prep service. So you're still not making your own food, but you know, you're getting portion control. You're getting, you know, protein and fiber focus, um, that sort of thing. Maybe you set a a lunch timer. So you actually come up for air and you take 15 minutes where you get some fresh air, you take a walk, you call a friend, you just like come out of like your, your cave. Um, it's, it's about figuring out what are those middle settings. The same thing goes with, you know, your, your family life. If you're a military spouse and your husband is deployed, the demands on your time for taking care of your family are much higher. So what does that look like? It's about recognizing that there's a whole lot of life between all and nothing and figuring out what it looks like for you right now. And then also developing the skills to be able to adjust to what's realistic without ever throwing in the towel and feeling like, eh, I'll just deal with this at some point in the future, because we all know that rarely happens. Right. And I love how you describe that, your dial method because when we are in the height of different things that are happening in our lives, it, it's almost that, almost like, oh my God, I can't do this. And uh, I, I failed. So now I can't like, Ooh, and then we start with the negative talk. And I love how you describe that in such a way, which would really work for, you know, obviously women, but for men as well, because, you know, they have different things that are, um, you know, always happening. And I just want to, a sidebar, I want to thank, uh, we have a listener on, she's my very dear friend, Sandy. And, you know, Sandy was talking about, you know, as you were describing the, the dial method balance, um, and her husband travels out of town all week long. So there are different demands for her, of course, you know, with two, um, I believe her one son in college and one son in high school. So a lot going on with all of that. Now, Esther, as we approach, you know, we're getting into the, we're close to the seasonal seven, you know, that time frame from Halloween to New Year's. 
And I've done a, a lot of research on this topic because I'm fascinated by it because I was that seasonal seven person. And that just means for people who don't know that it is typically in that time frame, um, the typical adult gains about seven pounds. It's like, okay, where did that come from, right? And we all know that, you know, as we go into the holidays, there, there's a lot of emotional eating involved. And late night eating, like maybe leftovers or maybe that piece of cake or whatever it was that you couldn't eat because you're, you're so full. But now, well, you know, my grandma made it, so I have to have it. So let's talk about emotional eating and late night evening, late night eating, I should say. So good. These are such relevant topics. The overwhelming majority of women that I know and that I've worked with struggle with these exact things. So mm -hmm. it's, I think it's helpful to know like you're not alone because I think most of our defaults is that kind of self-blame. I just need more willpower. I just don't have any discipline. I don't have any control over whatever food. And that's so defeating, so untrue. But when we believe it and we tell ourselves it over and over again, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We continue to act like someone who doesn't have discipline or doesn't have control. When in reality, of course we can, of course we are. You exhibit those things in other areas of your life all the time. So I think that's kind of piece number one. The second thing is I think eating at night and emotional eating, although they overlap a good amount, are not one and the same. The overeating at night, I think, can have some other causes that aren't related to emotions. One being just general habit. Like I'm just in the kitchen rifling around because it's what I do around this time. And what I need to do is, is a pattern interrupt. I need to break that habit, whether it's, you know, putting something over the, you know, across the kitchen door so that as I kind of run into it, I'm like, oh, right, that's there because I said I didn't want to come in here. Maybe it's getting your hands busy when you're watching TV. We have a lot of clients who use coloring books or do some sort of, you know, knitting or crocheting or things like that so that their brain is occupied, their hands are occupied, and then it just goes out the window. You don't even think about it. Um, Another reason I see a lot of women overeating at night is just due to eating so little during the day. And this one is, I know, kind of counterintuitive and it seems logical that, okay, well, I know that I always eat a lot at night, so I should kind of save up and not eat much during the day to allow for what I'm going to eat at night. When in reality, the thing that will help you eat less at night is eating more earlier specifically protein and fiber. If you are having more substantial, better balanced meals throughout the day, you will very likely notice a drastic change in your cravings, your desire to snack and your hunger later in the day. So those I think are all sort of easier to tackle than if you're overeating at night or anytime due to emotional reasons, because that one requires sort of peeling back the layers and figuring out why am I doing this? And what can I do differently? How do I learn to sit with negative emotions and not react to them? How do I just feel them and accept that that's okay sometimes? What other coping skills could I work on developing so that my immediate default isn't, I feel bad or I feel good, I want food. 
that you have outlets in other ways, whether meditation, journal, prayer, therapy, just calling a friend, doing some sort of movement. There are so many ways to release emotions that don't involve food. It's just that we're kind of primed to use food for those reasons from very, very early on. I know, you know, even as someone who works in this field, I notice myself doing it with my toddler. You know, when when he falls and gets a little bit hurt and he's crying, it just like spills out of my mouth. Like, oh, do you, you know, let, let's go get a treat. You want to just do something to make a person feel better and food is an easy thing. But then you end up, you know, 40 years down the road, you're an adult. And every time you're slightly <laughs> upset, you're turning to food. So I think that's important to note too, is like just how ingrained it's become. It's not that there's anything wrong with you or that you have kind of done this to yourself. Like our entire lives, we have been primed for this, um, which also helps explain why it's such a tough habit to break. Because if you think about how many days, weeks, months, years, this has been your default. And now you're, you know, a couple of weeks or a couple of months into trying to do things differently. And you're frustrated that you keep doing it anyway. You just need to remember that I need more time. I need more practice. And that's what this is. A lot of us throw up our hands in frustration. You know, the, the lady on the podcast said that I should go journal or, you know, throw things around my backyard instead of eating. And I did it and I ate anyway. It just takes time and practice. And there are going to be times where, you know, first you need to develop awareness about the patterns in the first place. And there are going to be times where you're aware of them and you're still doing it. And I think that's the hardest part of the process where now you have more awareness, but you still don't really have the skills developed to change how you handle them. But then little by little, you start to figure out what works for you. You start to realize, you know what, that one time that I went for a walk instead of eating, I really did come back feeling so much better. It helped clear my head. And then I was proud of myself because I didn't eat on top of all the other things I was already feeling. And you just start to get those like little glimmers that, you know what, maybe there is another way. Maybe this is possible for me. And it's not to say you're not going to continue to slip up from time to time. I have certainly done my share of emotional eating, even after almost two, two decades in this field, but it becomes less frequent, less, you know, kind of quote unquote damaging, and it knocks you down for less long. You just kind of recognize eh, I'm a human. I slip up is there anything I can learn from this? And they just move, move on. So if that's something that you're struggling with, I really encourage you to stick with it. Remember why it's important to you to work on that. And something that was incredibly helpful for me was to write down how I felt after an episode of emotional eating, all of kind of that raw like I'm still sad or I'm still lonely or whatever. And now I'm also really mad at myself. I feel guilty. I'm ashamed. I got those emotions out on paper to kind of remind me the next time I was in a similar position, do I want to feel this way again? Because it's likely that I will. And then on the flip side, when I had those early instances of doing something differently and feeling good about it, I wrote that down too, how proud I was of myself, how good it felt to develop a, a coping skill, how glad I was that I had you know, behaved that way instead of the other way. And I could read those two things the next time I was faced with a choice and I wanted to emotionally eat, but like knew that I didn't really, I would read kind of those two, okay, like this is, this is the, the fork in the road which one of these outcomes do I want to choose? And that just helped remind me, oh yeah, this is a no brainer. Even though it feels hard right now, this is the outcome that I want. Mm. And, you know, 
I think the other thing with that too is, for instance, if you're you're starting to use weights, and let's say this is your first day um, lifting up your your dumbbells that have been collecting dust for a couple of years, guilty. Uh, <laughs> not anymore though. Um, but you have to develop that muscle just because you worked out that day. You can't run in run in the mirror like, oh, you know, look at my guns. Like it, it you have to de develop that that skill. You have to develop that that um, discipline because within that change comes growth. You may not see it that day, but it's the little steps that, of course, that you take along the way. We tear down that muscle. That's where the growth happens. Wow, this has been such an amazing podcast. Esther, where can our viewers and listeners um, get in contact with you? I am on Instagram and Facebook, and I also have a podcast. So my podcast is called the Live Diet Free Podcast, and that's the name of my free Facebook group as well. So you can search my name and either of those things um, and find those. And then on Instagram, I'm esther.avant, just my full name. And I am happy to chat with any of you who have been listening. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. My gosh, I hope you will definitely consider coming back on again and, you know, be our guest and, you know, let's have that care conversation and wow. I would love to, that would be so fun. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you guys for being here and listening. You're so welcome. Thank you again. Just a quick, you know, recap today, of course, is Wealth Wellness Wednesday. Carol Sue's one of her favorite days. Obviously, she explains it much better than I could ever possibly do. But Wealth Wellness Wednesday is the opportunity for you to create that ripple effect. In other words, if you're out and about and maybe you go down to Cumbies and buy yourself a coffee, maybe you pay for the coffee for the person behind you. It's not about the financial, um, about giving to your favorite charity. It's about surprising an unsuspecting individual with kindness. And I think we all need that today in the world today. Again, um, prayers and wishes for everyone in the state of Florida 67 counties, you're all going to get hit with something and you're in our thoughts and prayers. And let's get that prayer chain going. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here today. My name is Janice, aka Wellness Diva 5.0. And even though my sister is not here, she is Carol Sue. And she's the Nani boss. That's N-O-N-N-I-E-B-O-S-S. And this has been an amazing two sisters podcast on this Wealth Wellness Wednesday. Thank you so much, everyone. And we'll see you again real soon. Bye for now.